Welcome to Restored Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We left off last time talking about grace and works. Um, a little bit about the meaning of words, specifically the meaning of works. And uh, Corey brought out a good point about, and when you read in works in the New Testament, it's referring to the law of Moses. It's referring to that. And that's what, that's the perspective we need to, to keep in mind. Um, a lot of times in the debates today, we talk about grace versus works. And as Corey brought out last time, that's even the wrong premise. That's not really, we shouldn't even attach that word works to what we're talking about today. It was the law of Moses. And I think a major thing really that has me concerned about this whole debate is just that people think the way to heaven is to simply confess a belief in Christ and then rely on his works on the cross. And that's only, that's only part of the story. Um, the rest of the story is that we need to have a, a changed heart, a transformation, and that involves uh, becoming the kind of creatures that are empowered to love one another as he has loved us. And Jesus gave that commandment, the great new commandment, love one another as I've loved you. And this transformation takes everything we have as humans. It doesn't come easily. It's not, it's not something that we sit back and say, Christ did everything. To be transformed you know, requires sacrifice, obedience, Honesty, prayer, fasting, just ordering our whole life around getting to know and have a relationship with our Creator. And you could label these things at works, but I think that that gets complicated and just messes up the whole dialogue. So what we're talking about is just simply talking about living the life of a Christian if you've really come to the Lord. Um, one other thing found in Scripture that I think is important is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us that allows us to, um, to love and to do the works of Christ. It's, it's him dwelling within us. It's not, it's not us doing our own works. It's Christ doing it through us. And so that was some thoughts I had as we finished up last week. Corey was going to talk about, uh, we said we were going to talk about some of the reformers, some of the men that um, kind of had the pendulum swing from one way to the other, Martin Luther and some others, and, uh, and continue with that grace versus uh, works dialogue. But uh, I'll let Corey... Corey, pick up there, because I know he's he's been doing some reading. Well, hey, Mike, thanks for having me back, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk. You know, on the way over here, I was actually just considering this word grace and what it really means to us. Uh, you know, we, we hear it thrown out, but, you know, grace ends up becoming this word that takes on sometimes different meanings than what perhaps Scripture originally implied. Uh, the, the basic idea of grace is that we had a debt that we could not pay. And because of that debt we could not pay, God intervened. And it was not something we asked for, not something we, we could have done for ourselves, but he did it out of his love for us to, to pay the price of sin. But if we live in grace, you know, you, you can hear people say, well, you walk in grace, live in grace. You know, what, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Just even before we talk about the works aspect, what does it, what does it mean to you, Mike? Do you have a a feeling or a picture that comes up if someone says, hey, this guy's walking in, in grace or walking in the love of Christ. I do have a picture, and that's only because of a sermon that I sat in one time that really made it clear to me, and it was this. Grace is basically the opportunity for me to live out um, what God's commanded um, through his power to use my gifts and talents, um, it, it's the opportunity to respond. It's the opportunity to respond. It's not anything free. Right, right. You know, there's a parable in the Bible. I was thinking about this, and the word grace isn't used, but it illustrates it so beautifully. There's the parable Jesus tells about the person who had a lot of debt, and a man came before a judge, and he had so much debt he couldn't pay it. Now, what's fascinating about this story is that uh, when you consider the amount of debt that the story points to, it, it's staggering. A, a man was told uh, he owed 10,000 talents. Now, a, a talent was a unit of measure of weight. A talent, according to modern definition, was about 50 pounds. So some man 
owed 50 or 10,000 talents times 50, 500,000 pounds of, and the medal of the day was gold. So I did a little math in my head. <laughs> he owed he owed a debt worth 500,000 pounds of gold. What does that mean in our numbers? Well, gold is measured in a troy ounce, and there's 14.6 troy ounces in a pound. You have gold at currently $1,440 per troy ounce. So you do a little math. You take 50, uh, what do we say, 500,000 pounds times 14-something point six. That's like 7.3 million. You times that by $1,442 per troy ounce. Now you have 7.3 million troy ounces. You come up with a value this guy owes of over $10 billion. Okay. This is, this is what you did in your head. On yeah, I did for this fun. in my head. On Siri <laughs> helped to too. I said, Siri, what is a troy <laughs> ounce? What is this? But anyhow, so I, I'm doing this math in my head and I'm thinking, okay, this guy has a debt of over $10 billion. And what does the judge do? He says, I see you have nothing with which to pay. I'm going to forgive the debt. And so what does this guy do? Well, I'm sure he's grateful, but he goes out and he sees someone who owes how much? A buck. He owes a dollar to this guy. And what does he do? Does he equally forgive? He had just been forgiven over $10 billion. If you could pay a million dollars a day on that debt at a current interest rate of just a few percent, you would still never pay off the principal, ever. It would, the, the interest would grow faster than the principal could be paid off, even if you could pay a million dollars a day. What, what this story points out to me is what it means to live in grace. We know the guy should have forgiven this other person who owed him a dollar, but what does he do instead? He grabs him by the throat and he says, you're going to jail. For until you can pay me back, right, of the buck. Well, when the original judge hears this guy who had been forgiven $10 billion couldn't forgive someone who owed him a buck, what does he do? He says, well, now you're going to jail and you're not going to come out until everything is paid. What does this have to do with grace? Well, if we live in grace, if we walk in grace, we're willing to do the thing that God was so happy to do for us. He forgave us what in this story would have been billions, and he asks us for, to forgive our neighbor a buck, right? What does that mean the, in, in terms of human and life and interactions and history? That means all of the evil that humans have done to each other, you know, the, the crimes against humanity, the, the Holocaust, the, you know, the, the, the despots of the world, all these tyrants and people who uh, just impose awful injustices upon humanity through the course of time and, and, and people stealing from each other and murder and all these sins against each other, that those sins of humanity matter like a couple bucks compared to the sins of humanity to God, right? The things that we do to each other don't matter at all compared to the things that God has already forgiven us in magnitude and willing to. We have no understanding of the magnitude of that cost for him to pay the price. So what should be our response? Our response is that we walk in love and we forgive people and we come to this early understanding in life that, hey, if, if someone trespasses me, I'm going to forgive them, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for the strength to pray for people who despitefully use me and persecute me because I've been forgiven billions and his crime against me or her crime against me is a buck, Right? And so to me, that becomes the definition of what it means to walk in grace. Did we do that? Did we do that in life, right? Corey, have you ever had, um, and certainly don't, don't say it out loud here, but have you ever had a <laughs> no sin? No one's listening. <laughs> oh, oh, I hope that's not true. <laughs> have you ever had a sin or something that you struggled with, a thorn in your side, as Paul referred to, that you just couldn't overcome or that you continue to struggle with? Oh, you know what? I think we all do in life, and I've had, I've had my own, and I don't know that sometimes it's even like a personal sin or, or a hardship. Sometimes it's just a challenge in life, you know? Mm -hmm. um, relationships in life, you know, it could be something in your family, for instance. It's kind of like as, as good as you try to live your own life, there's someone who doesn't treat you back nicely, and you just have to deal with that in life. Or, you know, um, I, I think a lot of times in life we we don't realize that we're all living the life of Job. 
the, the, the story about Job that sticks with me is this. He did nothing to deserve the hardship that he, right. that he came to. But in the end, the, the overarching takeaway from his story is this. Despite the fact that he didn't understand why all these burdens were placed on him, losing his health and his home and his family and his job and his income and, and his hope, he didn't lose his integrity towards God. Mm-hmm. And, and the challenge in our life is this. We, we probably won't have all those things happen in one day like he did, but we'll have parts of all of that happen to us at different points in our life. And there are times when we're going to wish to God, why am I having to go through this? Lord, God, what? Well, this makes no sense. And we'll feel like God's silent. We'll feel like, I'm asking you to take this mm-hmm. away. Why don't you take it away? Well, that was how Job's story ends. God ends up answering him, but he never actually explains because he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You know, And he's not trying to put Job down in the same way God's not trying to put us down. But there are going to be hardships. There are going to be challenges in life. And they could be personal sins or, or weaknesses we have, but it's, but it's other things that we're going to wish was different that just won't be. You know, I, I look at Paul's life, and he could raise the dead and heal the sick and give sight to the blind, and yet he complained about a thorn. We don't know what it was. Well, the the reason I ask you that is because, um, you know, I've got a couple sins in my life, a couple weaknesses, if that's an easier um, word for people to stomach, but a couple weaknesses that I struggle with. And I really, in the last few years, I find myself being thankful to the Lord at certain times because I see other people struggling with things. And um, whereas I used to be probably very quick to write them off and be like, why are they acting that way? Why are they? He has opened my mind. And I've even said it out loud to my wife at times when we've discussed something that we've seen happen or, or maybe it's family or friends that are acting a certain way. And, I, and I've looked at her and I said, but Kristen, I'm no better because I struggle with this. Exactly. And so let's you know, let's pray for them. And, and I'm thankful that the Lord is, that just shows that he's working on my heart. Cause that's not, that's not nature of humans to do that. So I'm thankful for that. But that to me is um, maybe a little bit of mercy or grace that I'm giving towards other someone else. I'm hoping for their best person to come out and I'm praying for them that that happens and that they have opportunity to, um, to overcome. And that's what God gives us grace, the opportunity to overcome. He's hoping for our best person uh, to come out. Um, he's hoping for us to live, you know, and be our best person through him. So, Corey, um, as I said in the intro, I'm concerned that people uh, might look at Jesus and his death on the cross and say, you know, I believe in this, and this this is going to get me into heaven without going through the transformation process that that eventually cost each and every one of us everything. It it's a painful, fiery get the dross out purification that we all have to go through to be citizens of the kingdom. And so, when we talk about grace versus works, it's um, it's easy to get into a place where you don't understand or you don't believe that that has to take place in your life. And I don't want people to believe that. I don't. I don't want them to go through life thinking that. And so you said some of these things are maybe based on concepts that came out way back in our history that feeds the discussion today. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So one of the things, and I'll I'll probably say this two or three different ways, that's become apparent to me anyhow, is that this conversation that continually comes up in the Christian world of are you saved by grace or are you saved by works? And people use scriptures and kind of bash back and forth with them and and, and you have people separated by, by the very word that's supposed to bring us together. And, and when you see that, it's probably indicative of lack of understanding. And, and maybe, maybe there's more to the story than that. Well, such seems to be the case to me anyhow with grace and works. One thing is we, it's, it helps to define things, and def, definitions aren't always uh, totally accurate. But as we discussed Grace is this choice that Jesus Christ came to step out of eternity into time for us. He did it without us asking. He did it without us even knowing we needed it. But that was the only way the price of sin could be paid. And as we discussed last time, too, a little bit on works, so much of the works part of the New Testament refers to works that were required by living under the law of Moses in the Old Testament. 
And as we stated, it's hard to understand the New Testament without a little bit of an understanding of the Old Testament. Well, people in time tried to justify and, and compare scriptures, and, and sometimes people even uh, decided certain scripture couldn't be inspired because it talked about works, because they felt like this revelation of the New Testament is you're saved by grace. Well, our problem in our day is now people have taken saved by grace to mean, hey, Jesus did it all, and there's nothing I have to do. And works and grace are not meant to cancel each other out. Exactly. Because exactly. you're comparing apples to oranges. Right. Okay. And, and and that's where maybe we can talk about that a little bit today, because rather than this kind of it's a current theology that Jesus did it all and there's nothing I have to do, I think a little bit more accurate statement would be, Jesus did it all because there's nothing I could have done, but it doesn't mean there's nothing required of me. And so this requirement comes back to what John 3 covers in this famous story of Nicodemus, and I know we discussed it a little bit, but when he comes, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he's like, hey, no one can do these miracles uh, that you are doing unless God's with them, so tell me what I need to know. Jesus flat out tells him, he says, you need to be changed. You need to be changed by the Spirit. You need to be made new. And he says it's born again. And this whole idea that we have to be changed, and it doesn't just happen by saying I believe in Jesus, but it happens when we say I'm determined to do Jesus' will. And when we become determined to do his will and carry it out in our life, it becomes the fruit of our life. These are what the Scriptures call the fruits of the Spirit. Those, those works that are associated with that become the result of Jesus dwelling in us. And I think, you know, you've had some great thoughts about that, Mike. I was reading in Ephesians today, just going over the scripture we discussed last time, and uh, 8, 9, and 10 especially are just quoted all the time. And if you just take a scripture like that and read it, well, you could get all kinds of uh, understanding. But eight, Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've all heard those uh, repeatedly. But two ten says, "For we are the work; we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works." Well, if you just stop right there and don't even say the unto good works part, just listen to this: We are His workmanship; we are His work, created in Christ Jesus. That is the. That is what happens when you become a Christian, when you're baptized and you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. God starts doing this work in you, recreating you, being born again in Christ Jesus. And then it says, unto good works, which God hath ordained that we should walk in them. As we are becoming transformed, we use the word transformed, born again, um, the Holy Spirit is, our calling is to have the Holy Spirit dwell within us. It's not us doing those works. It's the Holy Spirit within us. It's not me anymore living, but Christ living in me. And those are word pictures that are, that are only understood through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And we can listen to those all day long and never internalize them or understand. But you can't boast of works. And I hate to even keep using that because we're referring to the word a lot. You can't boast that you're doing a bunch of good things if it's Christ within you doing them. Right, right. The only thing you can boast of is say, Lord, I've done my best to submit my will and my life to you as best that I can. And even then you can't boast because you're responding to the Holy Spirit. It's pulling you there. It's doing that work and calling you and pulling you with everything that God has to get you to that point. And so the fact that you're even born into this world and that that you have an opportunity to uh, just be infused with eternal life one day in the celestial kingdom that we have no idea how great or how wonderful it's going to be. The fact all of that is is just can be called the grace of God, this wonderful gift. But yet he says, I can't just make little robots and put you there. You have to go through this process of choosing and being transformed and feeling the effects of sin and having an opposition in every single thing you do so that you can come out and appreciate and be with me in that kingdom. And that word you said, born again, that is found throughout the Book of Mormon, a born-again experience. It means you are now Christ living within you, not you anymore. And so you can't, you're not doing your own works. It's Christ within you. Amen. And, you know, when you mentioned also, you know, submitting your will to his, that's the 
those were the famous words of Jesus. He says, hey, I've, I've submitted my will to the Father, and, and I've overcome. And he, he outlines that's the ultimate work. That's what it ultimately means is that we're demonstrating that we want God's way, we want his spirit so much infused into our soul that we put our own will aside. And, and that ultimately is the, the vehicle through which the Holy Spirit works. Is when we lay our will aside and say, Lord, I want what you want. It means if I even have to suffer with this thorn in my side for my life, I will do it because somehow if that glorifies you, I will do it. And, and that is the ultimate example is that when we're willing to suffer things in this life, at trials and tribulations, and not lose our integrity towards God or our determination to do his will, that that's the ultimate of what works means in the in the good sense. When Jesus says, hey, I've, like, you read Ephesians 2, 2, 8, and 9, a lot of Christians stop there because they're like, oh, well, story's closed, we're created, or we're saved by grace, and, and works don't matter. That's That wasn't the story that Paul was talking about because Ephesians 2.10, it says, hey, God created us unto good works. He, he created us so his spirit could live through us, and it's a different comparison. Uh, one of the things that helps bring this out is um, if we look back to how this argument got started, you know, going back into the 1500s, um, you know, if, if I would ask you point blank, hey, who who is a person who is a a nationalist and became known for German nationalism and his first name has six letters and his last name has six letters and his last name ends in ER and he he wanted the German people to be unified and in fact he hated the Jews and he hated them so much that he even wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies and that book polarized a lot of Europe against Jews. You know, if I said, hey, who is this person who did it? <laughs> most most people are probably going to say, oh. Adolf Hitler. Yeah, Hitler, right. It fits, you know, right. six letters. No, but the person who wrote the book, The Jews and Their Lies, it was Martin Luther. And unfortunately, and I'm not here to bash anyone. I'm not here to impugn anyone's character. Um, because, you know, people can do the same. You know, you could take Joseph Smith or someone and, and say, well, he did this and said this and all that stuff. And, and I, I'm not trying to bring that up. But um, and I don't even know that I even want to share it on the podcast. But just maybe I'll, I'll plant this seed. If someone's interested, just just Google search the word Martin Luther and the Jews and their lies, and you can find texts where he says excoriating things. I mean, he advocates burning their synagogues and raising their homes, and and he he calls them the the Jews pigs, and they can't be God's people. Um, it, it's very very. Um, problematic when you consider if this is the person who we've somehow as modern Christians or at least through the Reformation associated understanding of grace with, how can you have hatred in your heart and, and, and teach us? And I, again, it sounds like I'm just not, I'm all of a sudden doing what I said I'm not going to do. I'm not trying to impugn his character, but it's, it's kind of like this. How could you, you know, have have an affair with someone and then go ahead and and write a, a marriage manual? You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like there's some conflict there. Well, in in some of these things, and I, I I don't even want to do it for the podcast. I don't want to share some of these words right now, but but it was it was awful. And 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 some of this came from, and and I'm, it's going to sound like I'm labeling, but in the days of the 1500s, uh, some of it came through the the church out of Rome where there was a lot of hatred uh, administered towards the Jews. I mean, the, the Jews were the original slaves who built the Colosseum. You know, after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, uh, shortly after Jesus walked, these Jews were rounded up and taken back to Rome, and they became the slaves that built the Colosseum. I mean, it was their understanding and technology that made all that cool stuff, and now it's like, ooh, I don't know if I like it so much when you think about it was built on the backs of them. Yeah. But, but Robert, Luther was, But Luther was protesting what had what the church was had had transformed into and then right he was kind of the one of the first major protesters and then others whether they picked up all of his hatred for the Jews or not they picked up on the protesting which became the protestants protesting what the church had become and then picked up some of his ideas I'm sure right and so you know Luther becomes known for speaking out against exactly what you said, the fact that you know the Catholic Church that he, he had been a part of was very much works-based. And all of a sudden, you know, and he brings to light, hey, there's this salvation by grace. Um, he has a problem with anything works-related. And so even to the point where he wanted to dismiss 
three books of the Bible that I know of, the book of James, Hebrews, and Revelation, all because they mention the word works. In fact, I'll paraphrase it here, but I, there, I have a quote in front of me. I won't read the whole thing. But he, he basically said regarding the book of James, he said, oh, well, some Jew must have written it, someone who had heard about Christians but never was one. He, he, he felt like anything associated with works couldn't have been associated with Jesus Christ. And he then goes on to say this. Um, he, 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 I have a statement from Martin Luther. Many sweat to reconcile St. Paul and St. James, but in vain. So he's talking about the Gospels in the New Testament as it comes from Paul or, or the book of James. But he says, but this is vain. He says, faith justifies and faith does not justify. These terms contradict each other flatly. If anyone can harmonize them, I will give him my doctor's hood and let him call me a fool. So this is Martin Luther saying, hey, if you can reconcile what Paul is saying and James are saying, uh, you know, I, uh, this... I'll let you have it, but he thinks it can't be done. Um, so he, he even commented, uh, this is from uh, Martin Luther, we should throw out the epistle of James out of the school. This was the, the University of Wittenberg in Germany where he had been teaching. Um, so to a case in point, if you look at a couple of scriptures from the New Testament, here's one. Uh, Romans 3.28 states, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith alone without the deeds of the law. And so there's one kind of like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that you read. Justified means to be made spiritually righteous. So by faith alone without the deeds of the law. I'll come back to that one. But contradicting that flatly with James 2.23 that says this, you see then that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So here you have what seemed to be totally contradictory scripture in people who were walking and talking in the days of Jesus Christ. I mean, they're there with him in his ministry. Well, Paul kind of was. Now that works. That works in that scripture. Was that referring still to the works of the Mosaic law? Because it wasn't, was it? He was saying, my good, my living out maybe, or maybe the dialogue had had changed around right there because he's not referring to the works of the law. Well, sure. And and so one of the things, well, two things, going back to Romans 3.28, exactly right. Faith by the deeds of the law, that, that word, the law, when you look at the scriptures, was that word for nomos or Torah. Right. Nomos was the Greek word for law, which translated back to the Hebrew word Torah, which was a reference to the law of Moses. And what Romans, the larger story of, of Romans and Hebrews and Galatians, and I'd love to open up all these scriptures today if we can, but within the context of a podcast anyhow, um, is to see that the overarching message of Paul in the New Testament is that the law of Moses was done. And what they were trying to teach people is that these sheep they were bringing to church for sacrifice and all that stuff, that was all things that pointed towards Christ, and, and it was done. Uh, in, in the Americas, the people in the Book of Mormon knew this from the beginning, that it all pointed towards Christ. That's why Nephi writes, hey, the law has become dead unto us. We, we teach of Christ, we preach of him, we prophesy of him. But in the New Testament, these people were still consumed by it. So Paul in Romans is sharing that, hey, you're, you're not made uh, righteous by the work that you did through the law, all the washings and the, and the being clean and unclean and all these remediations for those problems that the law prescribed. They were just types and shadows and similitudes. But the works James is talking about, show me your works without show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not referring to the works of Moses. He's referring to exactly living the Christ like life. Exactly. Being a disciple, living out, being transformed. He, I will show you my my faith by my transformation. Look at what amen. I'm doing with Christ within me. And as you so said, you have to be careful. Switching those two words when you're reading the New Testament. Which works are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. Transformation or the law? For people who are kind of scripture nerds, you can go mm -hmm. use a book like Strong's Concordance and find it online, and you can start searching these word works, and you find that it's really two camps. You find these works of the law, which has one definition, and, and these works that Jesus is talking about, or James, you know, Ephesians 2.10 or James 2.23, by works a man is justified, is not the same word they used when they were talking about the law of Moses. They were talking about, as you mentioned, if 
Christ's spirit dwells in you, it's him doing the works. It's his work coming out through you. And those are the works by which we end up being judged. And, you know, I, I say it's easy. It'll be pretty easy then to stand on God's right hand or left hand because he looks at humanity and says, okay, who are the people who had my spirit dwelling in them that, that let me work through them? Okay, you guys get to stand on my right hand, and who are you? Oh, you visited sick people. You helped the feed the hungry. You know, you did these things because my spirit was the thing that motivated you. Because I loved you even before you loved me. That's yeah, that's amazing. And so then you look at the debate of, and, and it just seems it just falls apart because you're you're talking about two different things. It I is. Mean, it is. And we've been we've been sucked into this argument that really didn't exist. The, the way we argue this in our day, or at least we listen to the arguments among theologians, well, are we saved by faith or do we have to do anything? You know, people will say, well, baptism doesn't count because that's a work. It's like, come on, you know, they, they discount a whole major mm-hmm. message of Jesus that they say, if you do anything at all, that's a work, so you only have to believe. They, they've created this argument that didn't exist then. You know what's interesting, even with that argument, their lives wouldn't show that argument. Their lives are actually much better than they, they give themselves exactly. credit for. Exactly. They, somehow in our mind, it, it makes people feel more safe that Jesus did everything and I just have to believe in him. But if you look at the wealth of material and Christian material available in Christian bookstores and online, there's all kinds of books on discipleship and loving your neighbor and all kinds of things. And it's all about you know living a spirit-filled life, living with the power of Christ within you. And so even though there's a debate, I think that a lot of people get it that you know, if I'm truly a Christian, I have to live I have to out. Be a Christian. It, yeah. yeah. And so it's not um so the the reason why this is important to me is just that that people don't believe a lie that um, that it's easy sailing because I really you know it, it takes everything you have to give up and sacrifice in order to know Jesus to truly know Him and to and to be transformed. But yeah, otherwise it's in vain. Yeah, and, and so you know when you shared Ephesians two eight and nine, Mike, you know saying hey, you're saved by faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. That's exactly the point. Is that Faith isn't just believing. It means faith in in the in following Jesus. Yeah, that's the faith he's talking about. It's not just faith as an element or idea that that's the only thing we have to do is believe it in our head. That he he was referring to the faithful following of Jesus Christ. We're saved by being faithful unto everything Jesus asked us to do. That's where, where salvation has always and only been rooted in the sacrifice of Jesus. So that's what he's meaning by faith. And he says it's the gift of God. That's his spirit in you. And then where it says, not of works, lest any man should boast. Again, this is just a condensed reference to the law. If, if you switch over to one of many scriptures, and I'll just share one, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, says the same thing, but it expands it and it uses it in a few other words, the, the same idea. It presents it in the same idea. Knowing that a man is not justified, now listen to, by the works of the law. So it's you could have said a man is not justified by works, just like Ephesians says, but notice how he includes by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. So all of a sudden, it's taking the same idea Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 just shared, saved by grace through faith, but it's explaining, oh, the faith is talking about by faith in Jesus Christ. That means to follow him, to let his spirit be within you so that his works pour out through you. But again, justified by the works of the law, the whole message of Galatians refers to this law of Moses. It's this thing that he mentions later in in chapter 4. He goes, Hey, have any of you guys heard this law? Who wants to live under this law? This law requires us to kill people if they pick up sticks on the Sabbath. The law says that you know a, a woman, if she's uh, in her uh, monthly cycle, can't come into the temple, or 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 anyone who's touched reproductive fluids, or if you've gone into the tent where a person who died uh, is in in that uh, state. Everyone in the tent is unclean, and no one can come into the church. These were just ideas and examples that came through those works of the law. Now, all those had their type and shadow, but that's the things that the law encompassed that Jesus said, we don't have to do that anymore. It all served to teach us about Jesus, who was our schoolmaster. It says, well, it says the law was our schoolmaster until Christ. In other words, these things brought us to Christ, but now we're, we're in Christ we don't need this anymore. It's done. So to finish Galatians 2.16, 
it, it expands the understanding of what the same thing in Ephesians 2.8 is, but it adds the word so we can understand. It says, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. In other words, that we can be made spiritually righteous by following Jesus and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So all that's referring back to what he's trying to teach this new generation who's always only known the law of Moses, saying, hey, you're not going to be made righteous by the law of Moses. You're going to be made righteous by following Christ. This is what it's always meant from the beginning. And that, and that, and it says, and and they believed. We have believed in Jesus Christ, and and that's another key. That whenever you, whenever we're reading the word and we see the word believe or faith, we have to uh, we have to internalize that we're not talking about a mental thought. It's not a mental thought. It's it is, um, it is tied completely to action. So when when they say that we've believed in Christ, it means they followed him. They they're practicing what he taught. They're giving all of their trust to him. Um, you're turning over all of your uh, your own desires to desire only what he wants. It's all encompassing. Right. That word belief and faith is all encompassing, and, and um, it's just not a mental thought. It's not sitting back and closing your eyes and I believe, I believe. If I just believe, that's not what the words and and what the intentions were when they were written. And that's important. So whenever you see that in the scriptures, you know, it says, if you'll just believe under repentance or have faith under repentance, well, that's showing an action, a process. And that's the only way you're saved. Um, not to just say, I believe. That has to, that is an action word. Right. Without a doubt. Right. And I think we talked about it some time back, you know, just a recent sort of thing I learned in root looking up other things on the word faith is that there was a separate word faith that we kind of think of, okay, the belief side of faith, mm-hmm. but the action word is imunah, if I'm saying the Hebrew correctly, is interesting because it translates best from Hebrew into the word firmness or steadfastness. And it's interesting because that word firmness exists only in the Book of Mormon, but it's the perfect translation for the Hebrew word that meant determined to carry out the will, not just to believe, but that that belief is transformed into life action. And so fascinating that the Pete, the writers of the Book of Mormon captured that word and use it in its English form when that is the very word to be steadfast or to be firm means, no, I'm determined. I'm going to live it. I'm not just going to think it or say it. It's going to change me now because of it. Right. And in, in the Greek, they're very closely related, pisteo, uh, faith and belief. One, faith is the noun, belief is the action. And so faith is actually something you come to possess as you are exercising belief. So your faith is what you, as you exercise belief in Christ and you see his ways are the best, you start to have this firmness in your mind that, yes, this is the best way. I now have faith. I now possess faith in Christ's way. And it's that faith that you possess that is strong enough to move the mountains. Mm-hmm. Even And it doesn't take a lot. It's just that you have to possess it at some point. And that comes through the action verb, the belief. Or some people say exercising faith equals belief. It's that action, committing, sacrificing, submitting, all of that, all of those words. That's that's the works that Jesus asks us to. And bringing it back to, to Jesus... And, and going to the other side of the world now, you know, leaving Paul's domain and coming back to Nephi's, I, mm-hmm. I love the the truth and meaning that come through the Book of Mormon, and I, I just wonder, you know, for for all the people who have tried to, you know, say the Book of Mormon was just, you know, falsified or just this creation of Joseph Smith, it, it's the world's foremost authority on the Mosaic Law for for one because you had people who were living under it, but yet they understood its meaning and how it pointed towards Jesus. And where else in the world can we come to this understanding? You know, people who who are the naysayers against the Book of Mormon, they they don't ever, they get so giddy to look up little things that they say, well, this time doesn't fit this and this and that. You know, Joseph Smith must have made it up. They they miss these beautiful truths that are shared. And I'll I'll read a couple from the RLDS version of the Book of Mormon, uh, 2 Nephi chapter 8, 7 and 8. Nephi writes, my soul delighteth in proving under my, unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. And then he says this, for, for this end hath the law of Moses been given. Now, isn't that, just, isn't that just a nugget of beautiful truth right there? 
My soul delights in proving to my people. Nephi's writing 600 years before Jesus is even going to be a man on the earth about how Jesus is going to come, and this is the whole reason we're living out this law, to point towards him. You know, they get it. They get it. It's beautiful. He, yeah, on this side, on this side, they got it. Right, right. And so on this side, you know, when he comes, they bow down and they kiss his feet and they live in 200 years you know, of peace because they realize all these things they did pointed towards him. Uh, and he explains even more, Second Nephi chapter 1, verse 71 through 72, he says, and again, how could Joseph Smith, a, a young farm boy, have made this up? You know, in the 1800s in New York, he writes, Nephi writes, Redemption cometh in and through the holy Messiah. Now, what do we just say? Paul was saying, you know, you're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You're made righteous. You're going to have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Nephi just writes the same thing. He says, your salvation only comes through the Messiah. And then he says this, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law unto all those who have a broken heart and contrite spirit. And there it is, and there's the fullness of the gospel. He didn't offer himself a sacrifice for sin unto all people, unto all people who have a who broken, come to him. Yeah. broken heart, contrite spirit. And again, that is only, it comes back to this parable of the person who has forgiven the billions. Are, are we broken by that? Are, can we be made contrite to where we can live and rise every day and say, Lord, I had no hope except for what you did on the cross for me. And I want to be different. I mean, that's what it means to recognize our unworthiness and the, and the penalty of our sin, something we couldn't have done anything about. So what does he ask us to do? He says, okay, so, so live that out. Become that person who's so thankful that I'm willing to give you this salvation for free that, that you become broken and contrite to where you'll treat other people with my same love. And the- the obstacle to that, Corey, is everything in the world right now, not just now, but for so long, is teaching us that we don't tell each other we're broken. What we do is say, I'm okay. However I want to live is okay. Right, right, right. There's right. nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. I am perfect. I have my own my own way of living. I, and we spend a lot of effort. And that's rebellion. <laughs> we spend a lot of effort, even in church on Sundays, trying to portray ourselves to each other that... You know everything's perfect in my world. I'm okay, and um, and the, you find the message in the scriptures are quite opposite. That every single one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we would only realize that, if we could come to a truth and believe that about one another, we would be so far less judgmental of each other and realize that we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same predicament. We're walking each other home. Walking each other home, and and. Um, we want to rate one another, and because somewhere deep down inside, it makes us feel better. If mm-hmm. if if Corey's a bigger sinner than I am, I feel better about myself mm-hmm. and my standing before God. Mm-hmm. Instead of the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just had a recent situation where, in a work situation, I I work as a contractor, so I work with different people in different places, and uh, had a unusual situation for as many years as I've been doing this. You know, you encounter all kinds of personalities, and I always thought I can kind of get along with anyone if they're easygoing or abrasive. I had someone who was made a project I was involved in very difficult where it's like, you know, I thought, man, do I even want to work on this? Because this person is just bitter and their uh, their emotion comes out in, in unnecessarily in, in ways that um, it just make you want to pull back and, and not even be involved. But, but I realized in that situation, I thought perhaps this was a situation where God wanted me so I could do the thing that was hardest to do and pray for someone who was, you know, uh, abusive, maybe even towards me. Um, uh, the scriptures say, you know, pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, you feel like you're a recipient of that and your first nature is to want to pull away. And maybe I thought, maybe maybe God wants me in the ring for this. Maybe this is a, a fight, so to speak, that I'm supposed to fight for him by by doing good to overcome evil. So, so is. And it's like, you know, we all need this reminder, and I certainly did. Rather than thinking, I just don't want to be part of this project, the easier thing to, to do would have been to pull away. I thought, no, I need to pray for this person every day. And, you know, by the end of this project, this person became a delight to work with. Maybe not to everyone else, but with me, he's, you know, this this person who had just been kind of abusive to everyone, 
I, I feel like we, there was a friendship we struck up and uh, nothing other than the fact that I feel like if anything changed, it was my heart towards him. And, and despite where he's, he comes from in his background, I don't understand that. And he, and he might have valid reasons for acting the way he does. And, and, you know, everyone comes out of a history of some kind, but in the, in the point of, of my life, I'm realizing, no, this was a chance to demonstrate what God wanted me to be doing all along with not just one person, but with everyone. And for me, I feel like, Hey, there was a transformation and this, this relationship became fine and enjoyable, but it wouldn't have been had I chosen to respond out of my own carnal uh, initial reactions, instead choosing to try to do what Jesus asked. The harder thing was to to pray for this person. I saw the fruit of it and it, and it feels good. So when we talk about this, hey, the broken and contrite, what does it mean to have the works? The, the works means you're going to do the unnatural things. If you come to the point where, hey, your, your, your natural instinct is to rebel and respond negatively to people, or you choose, no, maybe, maybe my response is to do what Jesus said. Well, what did he say? Pray for him. Okay, well, I'll do that. When we come to that point, that's demonstrating the works of Jesus. It, read, uh, do you still have that scripture pulled up again? Uh-huh. The one, yeah, read, read that again to me. I want to hear that again. I don't have a point. Yeah, so 2 Nephi 1, 71, 72, this, this whole scripture explains exactly what Paul was saying. And, and it says, Redemption come, comes in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Behold, he offereth himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law. Now the, that law, meaning not just the Mosaic law, but the law of justice, the mm-hmm. fact that we were cast out of God's presence, and that law meant we could never be with God again. That's the billion, $10 billion debt that God was willing to forgive that matters so much more eternally and significantly than the sins we commit against each other. Those are the dollar or two. That's why God's saying, hey, forgive each other, because you don't realize how big a debt you've been forgiven. That was the end of the law that Jesus answered. Mm-hmm. So and then it qualifies unto all those who have a broken heart and contrite spirit. In other words, to all those who will come to say, Lord, you know, I, I want to repent of my sins. I want to give away all my sins to know you, to call yeah, the Moni. That, just like uh, Moroni, is, just like we were talking about, how can Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, when, when none of them were sitting there repenting? Because he was answering the end of the law. He was, he was dying for them now, all of those people. That doesn't mean when he says when he says Father forgive them, they know not what they do. That that they all have entrance into heaven. He's saying, you know, I'm paying the price for this. Their sins, forgive them of their sins. Now, as we learn about the Christian walk, each one of those people has a responsibility to become broken and contrite through learning and seeing what their God creator did in the own flesh and blood for them. That brings about that state, but also in that parable that you started out with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. What does that mean? It means you walk out of prison and you don't, you look at your brother and you realize, Oh man, they have debts that need paid. I'm going to help them pay their debts because this guy was so good to me and paid my debt. I don't want to see anybody in bondage. And then on a spiritual level, when we realize you know, for every sin that I'm aware of, Corey, there's millions more that I don't even understand how, right. compared to God's holiness, when I see things in me that, boy, this ought not be, there's so many more I'm not aware of. Right. That's what I need to remember when I look at my brother and I see his sins. Yeah, like you, what you just said, can you, none of us can really, I'm sure none of us listening to this podcast anyhow, could actually know what having $10 billion in your bank account feels like, right? Mm-hmm. But but if every one of those dollars represented a sin of some type that had to be paid, and they come severally and, and in ways you don't know, I mean, that the accumulation of that, you know, you, you can't imagine just if, if every dollar was a dollar bill, it'd fill rooms and rooms of homes probably, you know, that much. But the point is, all those were sins that could have been things we would have to pay, but God, with with his blood chose to pay that price so we'd never even see the debt we'd never understand it but it's interesting that this scripture ends with a final few words and it says this unto none else except these who are broken and contrite can the ends of the law be answered you know what where you shared uh so wisely with us at the beginning that you know it's not our works it's the works of god in us the brokenness and the contrition is something that, yeah, we can want, 
But ultimately, it's the same response. It's, it's ultimately the response of His Spirit in us. It makes us that way. How can we be anything else if He's there? We can't be proud. We can't be puffed up. We can't be haughty. Um, the, the parable of the olive tree, uh, the master of the vineyard laments when all of the trees are bearing bad fruit. And they say, what was the problem? And they say, wasn't it the loftiness of the vineyard? Well, that loftiness is, is exactly what Isaiah points out. In, in Isaiah 1, I believe, it's where he says, the, the lofty looks of man will be bowed down. Or maybe it's Isaiah mm-hmm. 2. And, and, and the haughtiness of, of the puffed-up pride of the world will be done away in the day when Jesus comes and he manifests himself and reigns from Zion. This means that the, the people of the world are, are being asked by Jesus to allow his spirit to come in in such a way that it will break you of your pride of your haughtiness of your of your um, being puffed up about yourself and realizing that it's all because of him and only because of him and that's where the change starts somewhere along the line i i picked up the definition of humility as simply comparing yourself to god and when you're proud and you compare yourself to god you have no idea but as god begins to work within you and you begin to be filled with more and more of his spirit and you see more and more of his nature and how lovely that is then you see more and more of your unholiness. And so it's a process of continually getting a greater picture of God, seeing yourself in your own state, and the comparison becomes more and more real. Mm-hmm. And so as you as you learn and you actually internalize it and it's revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, you become more and more aware of your debt, more and more thankful of and it's not, and, and we've talked about this before. Yes, God put us here. We were born into a sinful world. We have no control over that. But what the greatness is, is that God says, through this process, you are created with the opportunity to experience something you have no idea how wonderful wow. it's going to be. And that's, that's the gift. It's mm. like you can get in that trap like, God, there's so much suffering here. There's so much pain, and I didn't want to be here, and I'm striving with all of these sins that I have, and it's you know, it's not fair, but it, God says you, it is fair in the end when you experience the greatness. And, and as we come to see more and more of God, that humility becomes greater. That's, that's mm-hmm. that process. Maybe you want to call it sanctification, that, that perfecting of, of your spirit on the inside. But uh, I think probably this conversation is going to continue into a part <laughs> A part three or four, but because um, I really feel like uh, well, this has been a good discussion today. I hope hopefully people are blessed by it. Sure, you know, there's a lot of good scripture that we can learn from. We can learn about the New Testament by studying the Book of Mormon. And again, if we if we realize that the Book of Mormon, these people understood the law because they were living it, but they understood Christ. All of a sudden, the message of Paul becomes more clear. So maybe when we come back, we can talk about a few more of the scriptures that. Nephi wrote about, other writers in the Book of Mormon wrote about, that help us understand what the real issue about grace and works was in the day when it was shared. I think that's absolutely a good thing. Should we uh, wrap it up and pick it up there next time? Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. Very good. All of you out there, God bless each and every one of us in our life as we're walking, as we're seeking Him, that we can be transformed. We can wake up each day and love one another as Jesus loved us, demonstrated on the cross 